0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask all the big questions about our political institutions, how they're failing, and how we might even fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
1: I'm
2: Julia Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University.
1: And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University.
0: So we are recording this on January 24th, 2022, the week after the big voting rights showdown on the Senate floor in which the Democrats forced the issue on the filibuster and the Freedom to Vote Act, and they did not get that bill over the finish line. So lots of speculation, lots of Monday morning quarterbacking on whether Democrats should have done that, whether Biden should have jumped in earlier, what the hell are Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin thinking. So lots of questions, and that's where we uh, specialize. So I, I think the first question that a lot of folks have wondered about is, did Democrats ever seriously think that they were going to be able to pass this bill by blowing a hole in the filibuster or whether there was something else behind this, whether it was a messaging bill or just to placate activists. I personally think that there was at least a sliver of a chance that cinema and mansion might have come around, or at least Democratic leadership was operating on that premise. But uh, I'm curious what you both think, and what are the politics of, of bringing a bill like this? Julia?
2: Yeah, so I had a couple of thoughts um, in terms of bringing up a bill like this. And what is your basic messaging bill question? This was interesting. I had this sort of response from a Republican friend last week when I, I was complaining about the media framing of the bill and that it was being framed as just kind of like this was a defeat for Democrats and not really around the substantive s- stakes. And he said, you know, this wasn't a serious bill. And, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But even if it wasn't, if it was just a messaging bill, I think that is actually different than the the horse race framing that it's gotten. And so I've been thinking a lot about if this was just a messaging bill, what was it trying to signal? And one of the things that I think I'm somewhat surprised this hasn't gotten more attention, which is that while the debate among people who are really highly engaged in politics has been very focused on the role of mansion and cinema in voting against that bill, it's also worth noting that the Voting Rights Act used to get Renewed, for example, by overwhelming bipartisan majorities in Congress as recently as 2005. So, for the entire Republican caucus to vote against it is actually really illustrative of the turn in in partisan politics and in the GOP specifically. And one thing that occurred to me is that while it's quite early for the November midterms, that this is a way for Democrats to have a kind of focal point. To point to something the GOP has done to kind of gin up anger and negative partisanship going into November because they're not going to have that motivation of 2018 of Trump in the White House. So how can they kind of keep their voters motivated to turn out, especially when everything has sucked um, in just sort of general context of the, the Biden presidency and kind of remind their voters, you know, voting for us may have been a mixed bag, but this is what you're voting against. So that's kind of the thinking that um, that I had going was like not only are Democrats trying to position themselves in terms of what what they're they're for, but also to clarify a partisan difference
1: yeah, I think that's right. The whole debate was odd to me because the way in which Democrats went about it suggests to me that they weren't I hate to use the, the word serious, but to pick up on what Julia was just saying, that they weren't serious in terms of trying to push it through. And why do I say that? Well, the first thing is they spend weeks talking about how they can't overcome a Republican filibuster to get onto the bill. They can't begin debate. This is the premise behind President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris's uh, twin speeches in Atlanta the week before. This is the talking point. They can't start debate. Republicans won't even let us debate the bill. Then it turns out that they actually can get on the bill by using uh, rule seven, not to bore our listeners with the specific rules, but that there are rules and they have tools that they can use to get onto bills and to overcome opposition to, uh, to beginning debate. So they do that. And now once they're on the bill, And they've spent the past couple of weeks saying, we just want to debate this bill. What's the first thing that happens? Well, Chuck Schumer basically fills the tree to block all amendments. And then he files cloture on it immediately, suggesting that he's uninterested in having that debate and having Republicans participate as equals in that debate. And then when Republicans predictably vote against cloture and for our listeners who aren't obsessed with the Senate uh, like I am, cloture takes 60 votes to win debate when a senator otherwise wants to keep speaking. Uh, and they, Democrats don't have 60. And so when the Republicans block cloture, Democrats accuse them of filibustering the bill. And then they try to change the rules. And they say to eliminate the filibuster. But what they're doing is they're amending Rule 19, which is the two-speech rule, the talking filibuster rule that's been on the Senate books since 1789. They amend the rule 19, the two speech rule, and they make a very narrow carve out for just this bill. And they say that during debate on this bill, there will be no amendments, no points of order, no nothing. Senators can only stand up and talk. They can't do anything else that the senators usually do. And then, After that, we're going to vote on this bill at a simple majority. Well, naturally, that doesn't prevail because Cinema and Manchin have spent the better part of a year talking about how they do not support limiting the minority's ability to participate in the legislative process. So it seems to me that they crafted a... a a solution to their rules problem that they knew would not get the votes they attached it to a part of the rules that they have that they could have used they don't need to limit it to just you know just the bill itself and then when it fails predictably what's the first thing that happens chuck schumer asked unanimous consent to take the bill off the floor they didn't keep trying like senates in the past have done you know republicans tried seven times to invoke closure on miguel estrada seven Times and the bill was on the floor for months at a time during the George W. Bush administration. Prior administrations and prior majorities have kept bills on the floor for a very long time and they don't just pull them the second it doesn't look like it's gonna work out. But what happens? Schumer pulls the bill. He asks unanimous know, consent to pull the bill. He says, we're gonna start debating NOMs and uh, starting on Monday. And then he says, and I, you know, now we know where everybody stands and the American people basically get to decide. And so that to me doesn't look like a very determined majority that is willing to put in the effort needed to do what Joe Biden said in his speech, the hard work of, of democracy. This is the hard work of legislating. It doesn't just happen in a 15 minute roll call vote, but Democrats seem unwilling to do that. So you
0: know, I think from my perspective, I mean, I think there are a lot of folks who uh, you know, thought thought this was just a messaging bill or you know, Democrats weren't really serious about this. Um, uh, but but I I really do think that there was certainly a lot of work inside the caucus to try to convince Cinema uh, and and Mansion and and that you know, folks even thought they were making some progress. Certainly, it was quite remarkable uh, to me to see all the the Democratic moderates who had previously. Opposed uh, ending the filibuster, Angus King, Tim Kaine, John Tester, uh, you know, all come out uh, pretty strongly, and it kind of makes me think that the filibuster is probably not very long for the Senate. uh, That if the the Democrats don't get rid of it this time around, at some point in the future, the filibuster will be gone. I'm curious whether. Either of you think the filibuster is going to stick around for much longer at this point?
2: Can I give an answer that's not really an answer? I think, of that course. It, it, what else do we do? <laughs> it sort of depends on how much each party wants to protect itself from from its own policy. I mean, it seems to me like that's sort of the utility of the filibuster, right? Is it allows you to blame the other party for the failure of your legislation, and if that's a more if it's more politically advantageous, this is sort of. This is sort of like Mayhew, but for a caucus rather than an individual legislator, right? If it benefits the the caucus overall... To say, well, we, we really tried on this issue. We really made a priority out of it. Um, but the other party wouldn't let us. It, the problem is the filibuster. That's a that's a fairly useful thing. Um, and I think that that, to some, that has a different utility for each party. Um, and here I'm going to like kind of go off on a policy tangent. But it, I doubt it will be the worst tangent in politics and question uh, history. But it will be up there. I think for the Democrats, the danger of their own legislation, which is maybe especially present with the voting rights situation, is that it leaves them vulnerable to the electoral depiction that this is the party of people of color. And that is obviously, you know, those types of criticisms have taken different forms over time and contemporary norms preclude some you know some sort of things that you can say but on the other hand was very racially divided sorted country and there's literature that illustrates that that there's there's political um, benefit and gain to be made by by race baiting essentially and so democrats are vulnerable to that republicans are vulnerable i think to the fact that their agenda is generally much less popular this came up, um, for example, with like the ACA um, repeal in 2017. So both parties are sort of vulnerable, right? I think in some ways our politics is is we have two minority parties. <laughs> um, and so if you have a filibuster, that's advantageous. The other thing is the electoral piece of it. And that's where I think things get really messy because, you know, what are the what are the realistic ads of either party having A true filibuster-proof majority, I think, pretty low for both parties. But they seem better for Republicans than Democrats, even though Democrats have at least kind of broadly, seemingly the more popular agenda with with millions of asterisks about all the different ins and outs of the Democratic coalition. So that's you know that's kind of the the politics that I see of it. But I think you're right. I think that. Part of what's happened now is it's hard to defend the filibuster on its sort of on on its merits in some ways. I think the notion of minority rule has become more prevalent than, you know, minority protection of minority rights, um, which was maybe the previous filibuster conversation. I think you're starting to see people move away from what the filibuster, you know, what it signifies and what the what the kind of principled argument for it would be. So that's my that's my non-prediction.
0: James, if Republicans have the trifecta in 2025, are they going to keep the filibuster?
1: Well, I think it just depends on what the filibuster, as we understand it, is blocking. Because it's not like we have intense feelings about the rules per se. It's what the rules allow us to do or don't allow us to do. But I want to kind of go back though to the premise here and say this isn't about ending the filibuster, at least what Democrats did last week. I'm sitting here, I'm looking at a picture of the of um, schumer's uh, point of order first of all it's a carve out it's a carve out for this one bill period number one and number two it and this is picks up on the carve out for debt ceiling legislation which was a carve out for a class of legislation so this is like kind of a slightly different carve out if you will then this he makes this is it's a very curious way that schumer tries to go about doing this and he makes a point of order And he says that further no amendments, motions or points of order be in order. So literally senators can't make any motions. They can't offer any amendments and they can't even raise a point of order if they think that something has violated the Senate's rules or precedents. That is draconian. That is a martial law type rule in the Senate that I think is truly unprecedented And what's remarkable about this is that it's just for this one bill. And if this were to have passed, then well, you know, in the future they can, we still have the filibuster, but then the majority can say, well, this other bill is really important too. We should do it for this bill. And I firmly believe that both parties approach this filibuster question in the same way. But I wanna take a step back though and say there's two ways to end debate, right? The filibuster debate more generally centers on making it easier to invoke cloture Right. Lowering the threshold from 60 votes to a simple majority or 51 votes. That's just one way that you can end debate in the Senate. And like I mentioned before, there's this rule, Rule 19, that the Democrats acknowledged when they tried to do their rules change because they tried to narrow it. They acknowledged it exists. It goes back to the very first Congress. It's been on the books ever since. It's how the Senate ended debate before 1917, when there wasn't even a closure rule in existence. And senators have used it even since then. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind here is the 16 pages of the congressional record on September 25th, 1986, that Robert Byrd and other senators spend debating whether or not the presiding officer's ruling that Senator Hollings from South Carolina is suggesting the absence of a quorum counts as a speech. Read If you read these 16 pages, first of all, they're fascinating, and then you compare that to the level of procedural discourse on the Senate floor today, it's like they're two different bodies. It's like they're not even the same. Like one is basically in kindergarten and the other one is like the the Senate. And what I find really remarkable about this is that the senators are just simply and flat out unwilling to use the rules that they have at their disposal to do the things that they say they want to do. And this is really remarkable. And I think it goes back to what Julia was saying at the beginning. I mean, something has changed in our politics because, yes, this has always been the case that that senators will, will say and politicians will say one thing and do another. But it is on a sustained basis, day in and day out, the one thing that you can count on is that the United States Senate they will not do what United States senators say they are trying to do. And I think that really gets to the core of the dysfunction in our politics today. So
0: I want to bring this back to the substance of the voting rights legislation for a second and the broader debate over whether this is truly careening moment for our democracy and that if Democrats don't pass this bill – it will be effectively a slide into uh, minority rule, given what Republicans are doing in a bunch of state legislatures, which is, you know, a, a view that I've been on the record expressing. I mean, I, I am deeply worried about the uh, way in which the the rules of our democracy are are changing. But you know, at an even deeper level, I'm incredibly concerned that the basic rules of, of our democracy have become just totally partisan. And so here's what I'm wondering. Would it have been possible, do either of you think, for there to be a uh, bipartisan voting rights bill, if that had been the the, the objection or, or the objective? And is it possible still there's some talk about doing uh, uh, the electoral count act? are there do do the politics right now make it so hard to agree on any rules changes on a on a bipartisan basis? Just curious how you all see the partisanship of voting rights and electoral rules?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing I just want to say is that minority rule is not the majority not getting its way. I think and then the second thing is that as far as the state legislatures go, you know, the Constitution empowers them to make the rules that regulate our elections. They may make good rules or bad rules. And I think it's very interesting that the state legislatures in question right now have made these rules or adopted these bills on simple majority votes. Right. And this is another very interesting thing. It's like simple majority rule or simple majority decision making in the Senate is is like a, is the great thing, but it's a terrible thing. When it happens in other legislatures, when those legislatures use the power that the Constitution gives them. So I think procedurally, we got a lot of kind of crossed wires and it's, it's very hard to untangle what the consistent procedural position is, which I think is probably par for the course. But as far as bipartisanship goes, you know, it really emerges out of the struggle. It emerges out of the effort to pass legislation. So what would happen if senators today were actually acting like senators of, you know, years gone by, you know, once upon a time? Well, the first thing is, and you see this with the even with the fight over George W. Bush's nominees, the majority says, you know what, Republicans, you filibustered this bill by blocking cloture. That's all well and good, but we're going to keep this bill on the floor. We're going to force you to talk. We're going to force you to actually do things right? And then maybe we'll try to threaten to change the rules. Republicans then on, in return would kind of threaten retaliation if they change the rules. And they say, well, if you do that, then we're going to do this. And the specific actions, like specific, not like what we're going to pass in the future with your new rules, but what we are going to do right now to make it painful for you to do that. And then as these two sides are going at it, you know what happens? One, information is revealed about the kind of how hard and determined both sides are. And then, number two, you have moderates who come into play. People begin to do their jobs, and you get the Gang of 14. You get people talking and saying, Man, can we get out of this somehow? Can we? This is really painful. Do we really need to be here for another day? But when the Senate is unwilling to basically go all night and into the weekend and at all hours of the day, you're not forcing these moments to happen. And I'm reminded of Ted Kennedy, the late Senator of Massachusetts, the the, the liberal lion of the Senate, if you will, in his member memoir, True Compass, he said that the Senate is a chemical body. It's a great description of the place. And he says that something always happens when senators realize that they are stuck in a room and they're not going home until they get something done. Well, today they know they're going home. The second the vote fails, Schumer asks unanimous consent to put the Senate in morning business and then blames Republicans. And then we wrap it all up. So of course, they're not going to get anything done. I think you have to have a fight to get the bipartisanship. You have to have a struggle to get the compromise. And if you don't have those things, then you're going to get what we have today, which is just a whole lot of nothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I want to answer in a somewhat different way, which is to speculate on whether there is a possibility of a bipartisan Voting Rights Act. I think it depends on what you mean by bipartisan. I think that it's possible that you could pull out sort of small element of the Republican caucus in the Senate and builds a sort of basic voting rights piece of legislation that way. But I think that the difference between now and 2005 is how much the sort of racism has been, you know, been unleashed into the modern polity. And I know that it never really left. And I've been a big proponent of saying that you know, people people who think this is sort of the, the low point in American democracy need to contextualize it in other eras. But at the same time, I think relative to two thousand five, you have a really kind of you know, you have this QAnon uh, group of people in in the House of Representatives. You have the sort of unleashing of of Trumpism. You have the unleashing of right-wing radical white supremacist extremism of different sorts and that makes it I think the the politics of voting right bill really tricky because you have these extreme groups and then kind of like emanating out onto the fringes a lot of this rhetoric that's made its way into more mainstream republican discourse about who should be voting and how voting should work and basically whether there's voter fraud like there's a lot of widespread misinformation there and I think the other way that I've been thinking about it, and I went on, on record in a, a panel discussion last week saying this, is that I actually think on the left that this has also been misframed and that the framing around voting rights bills isn't about, well, will this save American democracy or not? This is the reason that I think that's the wrong frame. And it's not because there aren't threats of disenfranchisement and voter suppression. I think the bigger threat maybe comes from elsewhere, but I think that that threat is present. But it makes for a kind of politically impossible situation because you end up with these kind of big claims. And then in order to make something bipartisan, these were smaller bills. And I think the real, the real issue and the real frame for voting rights isn't the fear of that absent a voting rights bill that American democracy is in jeopardy. The the correct frame is you can't be a democracy without protecting everyone's individual right to vote and to think of it more like individual civil rights. Right. if somebody is a victim of illegal dis- discrimination and violation of, of the Civil Rights Act or of you know some other basic understanding of civil rights, we don't talk about that in systemic terms. We talk about that in individual terms. And in this, this is a rare instance where I think that's actually, that's a more productive framing, that it, it is wrong to have a, a society in which people's individual right to vote can be abridged. And that in this sense, we need more division, right? And for people who believe that, To double down on it um, and double down against the claim that the real threat is voter fraud and voter impersonation and people voting who aren't eligible to vote. There's just very little evidence that that's happening, that that's that is the case, that that has any impact on the political system. But instead, that you know, the the point is, people's individual right to vote has got to be protected, and that's something we can work on at the margins with these more marginal bills. But when you say that American democracy is What's at stake? Then you're not only left defending that claim, but you're also left in the position of needing to make the case that your legislation really can like surmount that <laughs> a claim that big, right? Can really address a claim that big, and that's a misframing. So that's my that this is my both sides thing. Uh, both sides are screwing up, I think, in ways that are have profoundly different implications and are not necessarily the same level of threat. That's my assessment of the situation. So
0: there's a lot. A lot going on there as usual, and I, I think it's it's kind of a puzzling moment to to really make sense of, of what are the real threats to our democracy and what are the things that we should do, but our democracy is not entirely threatened if we don't like you know making election day a holiday or automatic voter registration. I mean, yeah, but. I, I think it does get into a little bit of a gray area when we're sort of defining, well, what is the... It's not not just about the right to vote, but what are the, what are the reasonable obstacles that, that are permissible for voting? And I think, you know, a, a lot of Republican state legislators who have supported these bills would say, look, you know, people can still vote, you know, we're, we're just putting in some reasonable safeguards. And if they have to wait online a little bit to vote or, you know, they have to fill out a couple of forms, like... Come on, I mean, but at the same time, you know, I think part of the the challenge is that there is a, I, I think, a, a, a pretty transparent and clear attempt to target voting methods that are used by Democrats and to just, you know, add a little bit here, a little bit there, on the hope that you know maybe you you reduce the voting turnout of certain Democratic constituencies just enough uh, to to tip the elections. Now, there, there's a second issue with all of this uh voting legislation and I want to end on on this which is the the question of uh, election subversion and you know there've been some critics of the Freedom to Vote Act who said well the problem is you know it's it's all all nice and well to you know try to expand opportunities for voting automatic voter registration election day as a holiday all of that kind of stuff to make it easier to vote but that that doesn't matter if one party is just gonna basically decide to throw out a bunch of votes because it it thinks that the other side doesn't have a you know, isn't a legitimate party, and, you know, specifically looking at the way in which the far-right extremists in the Republican Party are trying to take over Secretary of State offices and and election administration offices. So there's now this debate around the Electoral Count Act, uh, which is, you know, to clarify the procedures by which Congress certifies the election results. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for clarifying it, but I'm just not sure what the specific procedures ought to be if you give more power to congress uh to oh should you give more power to congress to override state legislatures should you give less power to congress i mean it sort of depends on where you think the bad actors are going to be uh should you limit the role of vice president i think a lot of this is kind of a guessing game that is inevitably going to get things wrong in the long term But the the deeper problem is really that you have a lot of folks running for office and taking over election administration uh, with a a fundamental anti-democratic or basically the idea that that if, if their party doesn't win, something must be wrong. And I'm not sure how you deal with that through rules or through legislation. And I think this is the greatest challenge. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like the, what What do we do about that,
1: Julia, James? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very reasonable frustration that you have here because, you know, rules, when you think of them as constraining somebody, it implies that there's a higher power that has the power to constrain. And I, you know, I think when we think about our politics and rules in our politics, and self government in general, the rules aren't constraints so much as they are leverage. They're the ability to kind of participate in the process. Because ultimately the people are Sovereign, and you know this. I think there's a lot to be learned from the effort at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century to reform election regulations, to put hurdles in from progressives. For you know, you can't do same day registrations. You have to be a citizen to vote. You can't just promise that you're going to be a citizen. You know, all of these types of things. And they had they were motivated by a desire to to curb the the power of of corrupt you know kind of political machines like Tammany Hall. I you know I get it. Um, But I think it does illustrate that the rules themselves are always going to, in a particular instance in time, going to benefit one side or the other. Not completely, but they are going to benefit one side or the other. There's no platonic set of rules out there that aren't going to. That doesn't mean that some aren't better than others and some aren't worse than others. But I think it's important to keep in mind that the rules are always going to, especially in elections, going to benefit one side or the other. And I think that's important because the way we talk about it now, it's like, how dare you oppose changing these rules and we cast them in terms of it you're illegitimate. And I get that and I understand and I'm not defending any particular set of rules. I just think it's important to keep that in mind is, you know, as far as the Electoral Count Act goes, you know, I think I testified before the House a year ago. They were trying the first instant, the first kind of urge after January 6th was to punish members of Congress who used the procedures set forth in the electoral count Act uh, to to force votes on things and they were basically the the narrative was that you're the one who caused the attack on the Capitol now it's since shifted to Trump but my comment at the time was you know of course the house has the the power to to punish its members but I don't think that would be productive I think if you want to change the the procedures then change the procedures. But let's not complain about and suggest that the way in which they were used is somehow going to undermine the entire process. Because I think what the process thrives on. Is people using rules to contest disagreements in the public sphere? That's ambition counteracting ambition. It's when we set down the rules or when we have contempt for the rules, we ignore the rules, we choose to uh to look the other way when people break them and then ultimately turn to violence. That's when the process doesn't work. And so I I welcome the debate to, to reform the Electoral Count Act. I think it, you know, if there's lots of different ways to do it. But what it does is it shows that there is a there's a it affirms you know, members of Congress that their commitment to the rule of law and the rule of rules and saying that we need clearly defined rules that we can point to and say, this is what I'm going to do in the future. And they're serious things. And increasingly, I think on both sides, we have this tendency in our politics to look at the rules as mere obstacles on the road to the promised land or as means to an end, as rationalizations, as things that we can bend and, and twist and ignore and do whatever else we want to whenever we need to get to where we're going as we deem best. And that's not, I think, the way that you make a, a democratic republic like ours work. I think it's quite impossible, to be honest with you. So I, I think you're right, and but I think we have to shift how we understand rules and we all have to reaffirm our commitment to using them and debating them and uh, into participating in in politics in the public square with them. And if we don't do that, then I think, yeah, we are in big trouble.
2: I mean, I think we're post-violence at this point, right? I mean, what was January 6th? The thing I keep thinking about is, is sort of 2021, 2022 updated version of what I've been saying since we started this podcast, which is that I, I don't doubt that our institutions can be improved. The Electoral Count Act in, in particular has some serious ambiguities. And I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that it's a little bit too easy to raise objections to the electors, although that that activity in and of itself is not objectionable. The issue, I think, is that we cannot institution our way out of the problem that we have right now. It's not obvious to me that changing Voting rights, changing the Electoral Count Act, what is gonna what is gonna fix the the problem of having some segment of the population, which is very powerful in one of the two major parties, being you know, committed to delegitimizing the other side and not being committed to the give and take of democracy. I think that's the problem, that's what I keep coming back to in this fight, is like, okay, there's always gonna be a rule, and I think James's example of using the Electoral Count Act in a perfectly lawful way, and then having the retribution punishment for members of the House sort of illustrates this fundamental problem, which is there's always going to be loopholes in the rules that can be exploited. This is sort of what Levitsky and Ziblatt are getting at, I think, when they're talking about forbearance, right? There's always going to be an institution that you can use to consolidate your power. But The reality is, you know, if you if you're or their argument, I think, is if you're committed to democracy, you don't you don't do it. And we can argue about whether that's an incentives based situation or a norms based situation or a principled situation. But whatever it is, we're never we're never going to make our institutions airtight to people who have some amount of power and who are really intent on subverting. The basic principles of democracy. I wish I had a better solution or any solution or anything resembling a solution. And maybe I think I'm anticipating Lee, you're going to give me a sort of reformer answer, which is we can always we can be better, we can change the margins, we can make it harder. I mean, that is a tactic, right? That is a tactic for improving and preserving democracy sometimes is just stalling and creating friction and roadblocks to this sort of consolidation of, of power. I'm, I am in agreement with that, but I don't think that is the notion that people are using when they, when they move forward with things like legislation and in a way that can't be right. That's a, that's an activist tactic. It's not a tactic of policymaking or lawmaking or rule changing. And that's, that's the reality that we're in. I think is that, really preserving American democracy is probably going to take some pretty severe norm breaking and not just tinkering with electoral reforms.
0: Yeah. I And to close out here, I agree. I mean, we, we need to transform American democracy, whatever the Electoral Count Act. I mean, if you find a way to, to fix it, fine. But it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. And this is what we're as a said before and i'll say again we we are in the doom loop and it's not something that we can just get out of by tinkering at the margins (laughs) we keep uh, you know expecting our political actors to act differently when the system is fundamentally broken we need to change the fundamental rules of the system and so that's that's uh, another episode of politics in question we'll leave it there Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.